Man, when I was a, when I was a little kid, um, they used to put prizes in boxes of cereal. Do they still do that today? No, they don't do that anymore? Oh, man. Um, well, the idea was if you could get the kids excited about the prize that was hidden in the box of cereals, then they would beg their parents to buy that brand of cereal. It was genius. Now, um, these prizes, do you think they lived up, up to expectations? What do you think? No, no, they were really exciting when you saw the picture on the outside of the box, but then you'd, you know, you'd get the prize and it was like a little piece of paper or something. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, kids like me would invariably dig their nasty hands down into the Fruit Loops to try to fish out the cereal box prize. And um, one of the prizes I remember was this, this secret decoder. And uh, uh, they would give you like a hidden message on a piece of paper, and you had to hold the decoder up to your eyes in order to be able to see the secret message. Have any of you guys ever seen one, something like that? Or maybe like there's like a message with invisible ink, and you like shine a black light on it, and then it shows you what the message is, right? Well, there's something like that going on in our passage today from Romans 16. The Apostle Paul talks about the message of the gospel as, quote, a mystery, he says it's a secret kept hidden for long ages that has finally been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So in some sense, he's saying the message was there all along. It was revealed in the prophetic writings, he says, of the Old Testament. They pointed to him, but it was written in, in kind of invisible ink, or at least our own sinful hearts and dull minds made it invisible to our eyes. Because looking back, I mean, spotless lamb over your doorpost so that the angel of death will pass over you. Or you think of like the, sacrif the, the sacrificial system with the Levites, right? And, and, and how the, the sacrificial animal would die in order so that you could continue to live, right? Or you think of um, the great passages, prophetic passages in the Psalms or, or in Isaiah about the suffering servant. There's so much all this and more points to the mystery of the gospel. But we couldn't see it, right? We couldn't, we couldn't decode the message until we looked at it through the lens of Christ, until we shined his light upon it. Then all was revealed. Would you turn there with me to Romans 16, verses 25 through 27? It's on page 951 of your pew Bible. And the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the final doxology. With these words, the Apostle Paul draws the book of Romans to a close. And this morning we draw this sermon series, which has been almost 30 messages long on the book of Romans, to a close. But what is the meaning behind this final doxology? It probably won't surprise us to learn 
that there's more packed into these uh, words than just kind of perfunctory phrases, right? This is, this is more than the like yours truly that we, that we put on the bottom of a letter or more than the have a nice summer that you sign on a, into a classmate's yearbook when you're like, why did they ask me to sign their yearbook? Uh, I don't know, have a nice summer, right? Because Paul is writing inspired by the Holy Spirit and he's revealing the truth of God. And in this final doxology, Paul recapitulates the entire message of the book of Romans. And he takes the opportunity to summarize the story of the gospel. Did you guys know that the gospel is a story? It's a story. We believe that it's a true story. It's a true story. It's, it's myth become fact. But it's a story nevertheless. When we summarize the gospel as creation, fall, redemption, restoration, we're telling a story, right? When, when we sing songs that include scriptures like, He became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become His righteousness, we're actually summarizing a story, right? And here at the end of Romans, just as we saw at the beginning of Romans, Paul wants to summarize the story of the gospel. So look down with me at verse 25, and we see three consecutive according to's, right? So Paul talks about being strengthened from on high according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, and then elaborates on the meaning of the gospel by adding a parallel phrase, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, and has been made known to all nations. And then here's the last one, according to the command of the eternal God. And in these three according to's, we learn three things about the story of the gospel. First, that the gospel is a long-standing mystery that has finally been revealed. It was kept secret for long ages, but it's now an open secret. It's now been disclosed. So when Paul talks about the mystery of gospel here and other places in the epistles, he's talking about an open secret, something that God has now revealed. The, the prophets, they were living in an age of expectation, right? But we are living in the age of revelation when the, the eternal God took on flesh and dwelt in the midst of us. Second, even though the gospel was a mystery for long ages, there have been consistent witnesses along the way, namely the Hebrew prophets, right? Verse 26 speaks of the gospel being disclosed to the nations through the prophetic writings. And as we said, the prophets provided all the clues, but it took the lens of Christ. It took the light of Christ in order to be able to see these things, right? And so um, the, the, the role of the prophets is emphasized by Paul in Romans 1 and in Romans 16 at the bookends. And finally, number three, all this has taken place, quote, according to the command of the eternal God. In other words, none of this happened on accident. The crucifixion of the Messiah or Christ may have seemed like the ultimate tragedy but through the sovereign plan of the eternal God, it was actually the ultimate victory. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the story of the gospel. It was a mystery that's now been revealed through Christ. It was pointed to all along through the Hebrew prophets. It was planned all along according to the command of the eternal God. Or to take it in reverse, the gospel was planned by God, announced in advance by God, and brought to fruition by God. 
But why should all this matter to us? What difference does God's sovereignty over the unfolding story of the gospel, what difference does that make in our lives? Well, it reminds us that the drama of life has an author, right? That the twists and turns in the story are decided by something greater than chance. That even suffering and injustice will ultimately be folded into God's redemptive plan. And we might feel like, well, that's all well and good when it comes to theology. But are you able to believe this when it comes to suffering and injustice in your own life? Or when you experience the constant tide of hardships, can you remember that there's an author standing over history? Brothers and sisters, the Bible never denies the reality of suffering and injustice. Never denies that. But at the same time, according to Scripture, life is never simply a tragedy. Indeed, tragedy is a pagan concept. It's rooted in man's own limited perspective, not in the redemptive purposes of God. It springs up from the Greek theater where capricious gods live in tension with mortals, not from the Hebrew prophets and what they have to say about the sovereign and loving and just God. Our own stories, our own reckoning of history in our hearts shouldn't mimic the lies of the pagans. Consider as an anti-example the tragic protagonist Macbeth um, from Shakespeare's play, whose murderous political ambition and cynicism are reminiscent of Pontius Pilate more than of Jesus. He has this to say about life famously, life but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. By contrast, consider the kinds of stories that Jesus tells. They include suffering and injustice, but because God is sovereign over history, God always has the final word, right? In fact, Jesus' parable of the tenants in our gospel reading today sounds strikingly similar theologically to Romans 16. Please turn there with me, if you would, to Mark 12, verses 1 through 12. It's on page 848 of your pew Bible. And I, and, I, and I love the way you guys are fanning yourselves this morning. It makes me feel like a southern preacher. I'm going to do a victory lap here. All right. Uh, so Jesus sets up the parable in Mark 12 like this. He says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, tenant farming was a common agricultural arrangement in Jesus' day. And here, the tenants are the leaders of Israel. And the vineyard, this is a common biblical metaphor for Israel, for the people of God. And the owner, of course, is God himself. And as we can see, the owner has done everything he can to ensure the fruitfulness of the vineyard. He put a fence around it and dug a pit and built a tower. The only thing that's required is for the tenants, the leaders of Israel, to do their jobs, to be faithful, right? So after a while, the owner sends several servants, the personal representatives of the owner, which we can identify as the prophets, 
to get some of the fruit of the vineyard, he says. And the prophets represent God's faithfulness to reach out to his people down through the ages, despite God's people's unfaithfulness. But just as Israel's leaders mistreated the prophets throughout the Old Testament, here we see in verses 3 through 5, sort of an escalating mistreatment um, and murderous violence toward the owner's servants. And then we arrive at the turn, the most important part of the story in verse 6. It says, the owner had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them saying, they will respect my son. And we know the rest of the story, right? The tenants murder the owner's son, the rightful heir, just as the Pharisees and Sadducees would go on to murder the son of God. Now, at this point in the story, it really looks like a tragedy, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, it would appear that the owner of, of the vineyard has been foolish and naive. Doesn't it look that way? I mean, how could he have trusted these wicked tenants in the first place? And how could he have given his son over to these murderous thieves? But what we find out is that God has been playing chess while everyone else has been playing checkers. Because in the punchline of the parable, Jesus explains that the mistreatment of God's son at the hands of the leaders was actually part of God's plan, foreseen all along by the prophets. And so Jesus can quote from Psalm 118, 22 through 23, which was generally understood at this time to be a messianic psalm. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In other words, God was not naively duped or surprised by these wicked leaders. Verse, verse 11 actually says, this was the Lord's doing. And far from being a tragedy, the crucifixion and rejection of his son became the ultimate victory. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. His rejection became our acceptance. Right in the mysterious purposes of God, the injustice of man was absorbed into the righteousness of God. And the humble man they rejected became the cornerstone, the most exalted and central figure in human history. That's how the wisdom of God works. Are these the kinds of stories that we believe about the world? Are these the kinds of narratives that run through our mind as we lay in bed at night? No matter how bad it looks, God will have the final word. Or do we fret away and believe our worst fears? Are we children of tragedy or children of the gospel? St. Augustine says this, let our God be our hope. He who made all things is better than all things. He who has made beautiful things is more beautiful than all things. He who made what is mighty is mightier, and he who made what is great is greater. He concludes, whatever you have loved, he will be that for you. Learn to love the creator in the creature, the maker in what is made, lest you grasp what he has made and lose him by which you too have been made. Amen. I recently heard 
and expert psychiatrists suggest that one of the reasons depression is on the rise in our culture is because we believe in the wrong kinds of stories. Instead of believing in the redemptive purposes of God, which are standard fare throughout most of Western history, we believe in a godless world. Instead of believing in the Imago Dei and the inherent dignity and freedom of man, we believe that man, Homo sapiens, are sort of an accident of nature. We believe perhaps that man is, is more like a machine, Homo machina, or perhaps can be reduced to you know, just economic self-interest. That's how the politicians look at us, Homo economis. And in all these ways, we tacitly agree with Macbeth that life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And how could that not make us depressed? Now, this psychiatrist was not denying the chemical or physical element of depression, but was instead suggesting that we are more than just chemistry. The stories we believe matter. The things we fill our minds with matter. Do you know that the earliest Christians viewed, they, they were viewed as strange, they were viewed as odd or aloof because they didn't attend the Greek theater, which they viewed as overly sexualized and immodest. And they were also viewed as odd because they didn't attend the gladiatorial games, which they viewed as gratuitously violent and a violation of the Imago Dei. And meanwhile... In our relatively safe 21st century America, we cozy ourselves right up to the same media content that the world is consuming day after day. Now, flipping back to Romans 16, if you go back there with me, Dana said that we worship the only wise God, and that's true. And he wants us to imitate him. Verse 19 says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. In other words, we don't need to be experts in worldliness. We're called to be experts in godliness. As Jesus puts it, we're called to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And sometimes it seems to me like Christians today are more afraid of being viewed as naive then we are concerned with walking in holiness. Brothers and sisters, we need to be more careful and we need to be more faithful. The stories we believe matter. The things we fill our minds with matter. And this is especially the case when it comes to how we respond to suffering or the events in our life that just don't seem to make sense. What are the tapes that are playing in the background in our subconscious? And we need to keep things in the right proportion, in the right perspective. Are we viewing ourselves as part of God's big story? Or are we viewing him as part of our little story? Tim Keller tells a story about preaching at a youth event. And he just, you know, just kind of finished sweating and laying out the gospel about how Jesus died for us and how God so loved us that, you know, he who was rich became poor so that, uh, so that through him we might become rich and, and all this sort of stuff. And then he kind of did this Q&A with the students and, and this girl, this teenage girl asked him afterwards, well, you know, all that sounds good that God loves me, but what does that matter to me when no boy will date me? Now, that might sound kind of like silly to us, but we can relate to that, can't we? 
right? She was, she was taking her own small problem and viewing the glorious good news of the gospel in light of her small problem rather than the other way around, right? As I begin to draw to a close, I want to I read you an example of someone who does the opposite. I want to read at length from a, a letter I recently came across from a pastor who was suffering from cancer to someone in his congregation who was suffering from AIDS. He emphasizes the importance of belief in the sovereign God rather than leaning on our own understanding of the events of our lives. And he emphasizes that faith often comes before understanding. Now, the cancer would eventually claim the pastor's life, but he wrote this before he died. He said, Belief in God as my sovereign father is where it all begins. Therefore, I must believe in order that I may come to understand. The reverse is not the way to go. I cannot by my struggles, experiences, sorrows come to know God. I must not labor to analyze my experience and so out of this knowledge come to believe in him. There's a reason for starting with trust in God and not with the complexities of our introspection. Whether we know it or not, we often try to understand God from a distance, he says. We're viewing the center from the standpoint of the remote circumference. Or worse, we've assumed a position in which we're trying to be God to God. Like Job, we virtually put him on trial and then we're left mystified that communion with him has disappeared. What is there to do, Andrew, he says to this man, when you can't do anything? Both these men felt like they couldn't do anything. And his words are, believe and keep believing. Talk about trust in the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering. Talk about the obedience of faith that Paul talks about in both Romans 1 and in Romans 16. I don't know about you, but... I often choose the fearful perspective or the skeptical perspective, and I need to be reminded of the big story. Amen? When I experience suffering, I'm tempted to forget that God will have the last word. When I don't understand, I'm tempted to believe it's just going to be a tragedy. But tragedy is not the true story of the world. The gospel is the true story of the world. When we look at things through the lens of Christ, when his light shines at what the prophets hinted at, the secret message begins to be revealed to our eyes, to our brain, to our hearts, to our souls. Romans 16.25 speaks of the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. This is the backstory of the gospel, of the mysterious plan of God, according to the command of the eternal God. None of this is something we could have foreseen at that time. But Jesus, as he puts it, these mysterious purposes of God are marvelous to our eyes. He quotes the psalm, these are marvelous to our eyes. The marvelous plans of our sovereign God bring a sense of awe and worship. They lead to a life of, of doxology. As Paul proclaims in the last verse of Romans, and with this, we conclude our series on the book of Romans. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.